0: All right. <clears throat> to be quite honest, I was trying to remember where exactly we left off last week. I should have gone and listened to the end of the recording from last week. And so, but I'm pretty sure that we we glazed <clears throat> at the end of the So if we're looking at the seals, there's seven of them and I feel like we 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 kind of glazed at the very end to right before the seventh seal, we looked at these two visions, the vision of the 144,000. Then I think actually we were just kind of there talking. We never really looked at the multitude, the second vision. And so just a reminder, the way that we're approaching this part of the book, which is found, so at the very top, this part of the seals is found in chapters six and seven. um, And that's a that's following the, the throne room scene in chapters four and five, which are like that is the crux of of this book. Where what what we understand to be happening there, or what that is describing, really affects how we view the rest of the visions. Because if we understand that to be a description of Jesus exaltation, his ascension to heaven, his position positioning by God two thousand years ago, that really sets in motion that the rest of the book then there are a series of things that ensue from that. From that reality, he is at the throne, he's at the right hand of God, he is reigning, and this is the way he exercises his rule, by unleashing, opening these seals. And they are all revelations, I guess, to, to the church back at the time, those seven churches, that God is the one ultimately behind all of the chaos of this world. And so that's how we're approaching these seven seals. And as a whole, I think, and this is my proposal, that by the time you get to the seventh seal, that's the end. Right, Because at the sixth seal, the human leaders are all terrified and they're asking for the mountains to fall on them. They're hiding in caves. And so the idea through the seven seals is that this is human history from the ascension of Christ to the very end, his return. And I will propose that both the seal, all three, seals, trumpets, and bulls, they're, all, they're not so much one following the other. So then after the seals, then these trumpets are going to happen and then the bulls are going to happen in history. They're more or less... Uh, we call them in parallel with each other. They're very similar, and they're, they are different ways of talking about the same thing. And uh, as we go through, I'll try to repeat that, but that is one of the differences in the way that we're going to be trying to read, anyway, Revelation, is that these things are not, okay, after God does the judgment, let's say the seventh seal, I think is pretty clearly like the wrath of the Lamb is coming. There's not much else that happens after that. No one else survives except his people after the day of the wrath of the Lamb. Very similarly with the trumpets. If you go to the seventh trumpet, at a, <clears throat> which is, um, we're just going to look ahead real quick. In chapter eleven, starting at verse fifteen, this is, so this is the end of um, the trumpets. Eleven, chapter eleven, verse fifteen says the seventh trumpet, uh, seventh angel blew his trumpet, and loud voices in heaven saying. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And then um, the 24 elders, verse 16, that's from if you notice, verse 16 says that the 24 elders, it doesn't have to qualify for us who it is. It's all referencing this throne room scene. This is the perspective of the entire book, that John is in the throne room receiving these divisions and revelations. That's, that's the main perspective. God ruling God exercising his rule. So the 24 elders are there, and they, they're they sitting on their thrones. They fall on their faces, and they worship God. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, <clears throat> Almighty who is, who was. For you have taken your power and begun to reign. The nations have raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, those who fear your name, both small and great. I think you get the impression, this sounds like, the day of judgment, the day the dead are judged. like This sounds like the end again. So I think that to me is another kind of reinforcing hint that both the seals and the trumpets are in parallel with each other, just like this, one on top of the other. They're not so much in sequence and how they're going to unfold in human history, but they're describing the period of time from the ascension of Jesus to then in the seventh one, the end. So I'll leave that as more of an introductory comment today and just see if, you know, uh, that might need some explaining as we go through, maybe as we walk through the trumpets, we'll see how that works. But that's very similar to what we're doing with the two visions of the 144,000 and the multitude. They are both visions describing the same group of people, but different aspects Different ways of looking at who's who. With one hundred forty-four thousand, we highlighted God's intimate knowledge of every single one that are His, and that not one thing happens to those without His awareness of them, and they are His people, and that's why He goes through each tribe. It's just representing His His covenant people. In some ways, this rep- not in some ways this is representing us, the covenant people of God, those who are be- who belong to Him. Nothing happens to those who are His because we see all these. Crazy things happening. The horsemen are unleashed. And then in the fifth seal, the big question is, Hey, God, uh, what about all these people getting hurt? How much longer until you respond? And then the sixth seal, God, there is a day coming where I'm going to judge everyone. And then the two visions kind of fill in and answer that question. Like, what's happening to God's people? Are Are they just like food for the wild beasts? God says, well, they're mine. I know every single one of them. They're protected. They are sealed. And then the multitude vision, let's, <clears throat> we'll read, we'll spend more time in that today, but that's, that's the overall gist of what I'm proposing that we read and understand these, these visions, that that's how these symbols will work, right? That's the flexibility that symbols will allow us is to, um, understand that they are more than just what's on the surface there. So just like the seals are not literal seals on the foreheads of, of Christians or followers of the Lamb with their names stamped. Much like we, we talked about the, the mark of the beast not being also a physical seal or a stamp. These visions also, they're not a literal vision of just 144,000 that are sealed. And same thing with the multitude. An uncountable multitude, that's like impossible for God. He, he, he has to know everything. There's no way that there's a like, oh, there's just too many. <laughs> he made too many. He can't count them. No, he he knows. The idea, what we talked about is this referencing, this is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, this immense number of children. That's how God's people, it's just, it's a reflection of the rest of the biblical story. Okay. How does that, how does that land? What do you, what do you think? Anything from what we've mentioned? This this is a different proposal to how we're reading Revelation. I I will tell you that. Different what I mean is it might be something you haven't heard before. It's not necessarily new. I'm not this is not just my understanding of the book. It is a it is a thing. <laughs> it has been a thing for quite a while as well. Okay, any thoughts? We're going to read more about the multitude and then try to work our way towards the trumpets at the end of chapter 7 today. I never under, understood about the hundred forty-four thousand. You like know, so many people talk about it being literal, but I couldn't imagine how it is. You know? Yeah, well, there. Are, it's not impossible. Mm-hmm. I just think that when you start looking at the details, it be, starts. There are questions that start arising as to mm-hmm. why were why is this one tribe left out? Where on earth is the tribe of Joseph from? There's mm-hmm. technically fourteen tribes. Mm-hmm. But there's always 12, is like that number. It's like it just represents everybody and for a variety of reasons. Levi never had an inheritance, Joseph gave up his, so there's two that get left out, and then Joseph's two sons come in and replace them. But if they start totaling in a weird way here that I think is, uh, is strange. I think the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that total. Yeah. They, they do. There are not just them, there are many groups within. Well, let's put the Jehovah's Witnesses in the cult status, but yeah. even inside of the church, there are groups that really feel like th- th- this is all, it's all been literal so far. This is just continuing in that, in that vein. And to be literal, the same group is mentioned in chapter 14, and they're all male. So if you're female, I'm sorry, you're not going to get the seal of God on your forehead to protect you from God's judgments, because it's only those male virgins who don't pollute themselves. So it's once we take things literally, there's a series of things that really get interesting in the book. I think this, this offers us much more flexibility. It also is strange. For, and never mind. I don't want to dive into critique anything else. But it's going to feel like a little bit of an interesting stretch, you know? Um, but, I, but I think this is, this is another way that John writes in the Bible, so the guy who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Revelation. This really fits with a lot of stuff that he does, which is he puts things together that don't really seem to make sense. He uses images and ideas that seem contradictory, like the Lion of Judah is actually a dead little innocent lamb, right? Those images are very strong and contrasting. This whole idea of overcoming by dying, it doesn't make any sense. Usually you overcome and win by defeating your enemy, not by losing to him. So there are these these things that make a lot of sense to me, That this idea of putting these things together in parallel with each other that seem to not really go with each other. They, they actually are just the way that John writes a lot of things. Okay, well, if there is a question about that that is just in your brain but you're not ready to ask it, I ask it when you're ready, but the question of how do we interpret that, how does that make sense? Those are those are good questions to think through. So much li- I'll just do it again. Much like the seals, I don't think that what we're talking about are these spiritual seals on some sort of spiritually powerful book in heaven. These these represent things. They're not they're not so much corresponding to something absolutely literal. That God is just breaking these. I don't know who put them there, if if that is the case. These magical seals that unleash all these things. They're they're not. They're just representing the lamb is the one who has authority to govern the earth. And no one else can do what he does. And same thing with the trumpets. I don't think these are magical trumpets that special angels have. That when they are blown, then things happen. It's just more or less how God... Maybe it's tied to how things happen in the Old Testament with the, the Battle of Jericho... And this announcement of God's power and authority. There could be various reasons for that, but I don't think we are meant to, to think that way, that there's a special music room in the heavenly realm and they go get these special trumpets. And when these trumpets are blown, something intense happens, just like the four horsemen and the four winds of heaven, the four corners of the earth. These are all metaphors and symbols. Okay, well, let's look at this other metaphor, this symbol of the great multitude. Chapter 7, verse 9 and onward. I think we read tids, tids and bits from here, but we'll get the whole shebang today. We'll read 9 through 17, and then, I don't know, we'll see what we, how we feel about that. Verse 9, after this, and there's that same word, Claude, you pointed out, that I think last week, this is just, this is the next thing that he sees. So after he sees the 144,000, this is the next The next thing is just a sequence. I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We know these... um, These people dressed in white, we saw that in the letters to the church. The people who remain faithful, God grants them these new robes. They wash themselves in the robes. That's people associating themselves with Jesus, his blood. Uh, Verse 11, all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Amen blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders there addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes, and where are they from? And i that's one of the coolest little verses in the book, you know, like this heavenly Person coming to John and saying, "Hey, you know who these guys are?" <laughs> like John is the visitor there, and I um, just find that kind of like a funny. It's not that it's meant to be humorous, but it, but it is interesting, isn't it? That this is how God would reveal him um, reveal this to John, this little question. Verse seventeen. I said to him, "You know, you know." And he said to me, "Well, these are the ones coming out of the great." tribulation or the great trial or the great refining they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb again you know, i don't want to come on that just yet let's just finish it <clears throat> verse 15 so therefore they this multitude they're before the throne of god and they serve him day and night in his temple and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence they shall hunger no more neither thirst any more Sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. The lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, he will guide them the springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Boy is there a lot in those three verses, but before we even get to that, let's let's go back to the details about this multitude, uncountable, it seems like multitude. I mentioned in the beginning they have these white robes. They've got palm branches in their hands. Back in uh, verse ten, or I should say verse verse nine, and they really do um, resonate a lot with earlier parts of the book, with the letters to some some of the churches who are going to get new clothes also and get a new name. And uh, their clothing seems to represent their new status before God. They have a new identity, a new position. And that's, that's essentially what these white clothes mean. And I, I don't think there's anybody else here to be identified with this group other than the people of God, One, once again. The people who are his, who belong to him, who've been given a new position before him. And so if there's any doubt right in the vision so far as to what's going on with the people of God, all these judgments being unleashed on the earth, what about God's people? Are they going to just be swept up in the flood of chaos and awfulness? The two visions make it absolutely clear that no, he has sealed and protected those who are his. And this group is like this massive group. They might feel like they're small, these small house churches meeting throughout Asia Minor, Rome. But actually they're part of an enormous group of people, all who identify with the Lamb. And it's bigger than we can imagine. I don't know if you ever had a chance to participate in some massive thing that the you know the church does sometimes. Not covenant, but the church, North American church. For example, some big like the Harvest Crusade is pretty massive. Or it used to be very popular to go to Creation Festival in uh, like midwestern Pennsylvania. You you guys, some of you are nodding. Have you heard of it?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Or so sometimes like big groups of churches, uh, denominations, gather together for an annual assembly or something every two years, every one year, and you get to see like, oh, I'm part of this bigger kind of a thing. I remember going to Creation for the first time. There was 110,000 people there that year that I went, like 20 some odd years ago. The first time, it was just kind of like mind-boggling, you know. And we we're all like worshiping together, and it's the crowd is so big that the sound from the stage takes a while to travel to the end of the amphitheater. So uh, it's funny if you walk through the stadium, you, you can almost hear them singing one part of the song, and then it's mm-hmm. it's just like it's like a half a second late. But in the back, they're they're singing it, but they're, not everyone together, just because of how sound travels and stuff but it's just man you get a sense we're so big yeah the, the yes, it's like the the light. night before there's a candlelight service mm-hmm. like our christmas service oh, yeah. there's, a, there's a neat thing to see the, all the lights mm-hmm. yeah donna
2: i went to this if gathering friday and Saturday, and it was all denominations and they're gonna have next year march 1st it's supposed to 25, and they wanted to simulcast for 25 hours. People in Africa. The last song we did, they had people from Singapore singing the song.
0: With oh wow! India, and they're pulling this together to
2: have this 24-hour of worship and God's word being preached all over the world, and that's their goal. And just the last song just made you cry. See all these different country singing with us and the worship team
0: singing their language it was amazing yeah it it is neat if you ever had a chance to meet a christian it's not from our anything our our church culture circle or nation it's it's neat that there's you can i don't want to say you can feel it but you almost kind of can we're very much the same it's the same god that we worship there's the same a same attitude reverence and respect Towards Jesus, that it's just amazing, right? Is that you get to experience? I think that's part of what this is doing. Is John gets to see this immense multitude, and the church through through this vision gets to see this is what we are all a part of in one way or another.
2: It's amazing,
0: like a creation. One day, I probably saw you there. Did you see me (laughs) there? I heard you singing. That's that's.
3: And you could just hear everyone
0: just stop <gasps> and be like, because oh. yeah. it was like, it yeah. was incredible. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, so you had glimpses of that here for those of us who've experienced that, and then here we are with this paragraph of, we're joining also all the angels. So it's it's just this immense multitude, and then apparently it says verse eleven, all the angels, and we know that there are quite a lot of angels, these created spiritual beings. Not all of them have wings, but all of them, it says, are just there. It's just this, it's just meant to be like an overwhelming thing. You know, like all this chaos is happening. The horsemen are unleashed. And in the fifth seal, it's even like, God, what on earth are you doing? There's this crowd underneath the altar representing the the lives of those who have died. And in a sense, they're asking God, how much longer until you act? And so these two visions represent that God has not forgotten and God is not slow about his promise. He's going to wait until everyone who needs to die dies. Who's going to witness for him. His plan is going to go all the way to the very end. He's not going to be rushed. He's not going to be pushed. He's not going to be intimidated to do anything. Right? He's got his thing. His lamb is on the throne. And, so, and here, this is what the church is, needs to be reminded of. We are part of this immense group. And all the angels, all the creative beings, they, they are all in submission to him. And we're all going to join with them. And they're all falling on their faces before the throne and they're worshiping God. So that's that I think is a good supposed to be a good kick and reminder for the for us, and it was definitely for them. We are not this small little group insignificant. We are part of a big, massive crowd that God has redeemed throughout time, and we'll add to it, you know, until we get to that day. This is this is who we are. We are those who worship the Lamb who have their uh robes washed white so the question from john is just meant to highlight that who are these w- what are these white robes and that that makes that identification that's that's what we do with our lives is we when we identify with jesus we we get this new status this new righteous status before god Com- not not like a semi washed clean robes it's just perfectly washed robes before god perfect completion Purity. That that's what this is. That's what this is representing. Then we have these three last verses, 15, 16, and 17. This is one of those examples of how in Revelation John pulls from different places of the Old Testament and just creates this new mosaic, for lack of a better word. Not a huge fan of that word, as of recently, but this is what this is. It's taking all these different pieces, putting them together, and there is this new concept and idea. So Let's, uh, let's, let's do this. And let's, let's, number one, notice the weird things. And you might not think it's weird because you <clears throat> we're so used to it. But I want to point one thing out already from verse 15. They are before the throne of God. And so far, no big deal. We kind of have an idea in our minds. It's God's governing area council on this throne. Then it says, and they serve him night and day in his temple. Then it's like, wait a second. Where did this come from? Chapters 1 through 5, there's nothing about a temple of God in Revelation so far. Just like other things that have shown up that are just kind of, well, where is this? Right? John is in the, the divine council room watching the Ancient of Days with the Lamb coming before him to grab the book. That's, that's where most of this takes place. And then it just says here that there is he sees this large crowd. He envisions this thing where they are before God and they serve him day and night. There's there's, there's day and night in this uh, heavenly sphere of God? Is there is, is it in our physical universe then, kind of a thing? You, you see some of these details that if we're taking this too much at face value, it begins to get a little strange. What temple is this one? We know of one that uh, Solomon built, then we know one that Herod built and would eventually get destroyed. Is this a heavenly temple? that angels built with other elements in our universe? What is it referencing? I don't know if you've... um, When
1: I read that, and prior to what you're just saying, I always picture that as being out in a large field somewhere Mm -hmm. with the crowd in the field and God and Christ or whatever up front handling it. Maybe I'm wrong.
0: No. you are meant to envision something, uh, but is, is this, is there this spiritual temple somewhere? Say, say that again, what you just said, sorry, th- unless I misunderstood it.
1: I look at it as being an outdoor thing in a large field area. Mm-hmm. Simply because with the amount of people that it gives, in my mind, you would have to have an enormous building.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, it it would have to be ginormous for the trillions of angels, right? Yeah, Bev. I just think of it as all of God's
2: creation is his temple at this point because he's. Yeah. But yet, they. Of all. Yeah. Everything,
0: all of creation is his temple. Mm hmm. Dennis? Later on, Revelation describes the. The New Jerusalem, and it gives us the dimensions for it. Yeah, and I've often thought, how are we all fitting in there? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's big. big but... <clears throat> oh well, that's another question. That's another issue. In chapter eleven, there is a vision of a temple. But it doesn't measure the
3: outside.
0: It doesn't measure the outside. Yeah, but part of what we're struggling with is, it's almost like no matter what we do, we're looking at this, going, "It's a field. It's a, it's God's creation." None of us are really thinking there must be this physical structure somewhere that experiences seasons in the rising and setting of the sun with day and night. Mm-hmm. I think when you read this, again, fa- falling in line with this symbol imagery, what, what we're not meant to do is think there is somewhere where there are, because later on in Revelation, there is no more sun. There, there isn't right. that anymore. Mm-hmm. So yeah. This This is not bound into our the way our physical universe works. There is no day and night. The idea is it's all the time. It's, in, it's non-stop. Right, it's nonstop. That's, that's the idea with the day and night. And his temple, yeah, it's, it's where he dwells. That's, that's the main gist of, of the whole thing. But he dwells in us, so it doesn't have to be a physical place where we will be perfectly with him rather than as we are now. So this is the interesting thing about this particular word in verse 15. There are a couple of words for temple but it just so happens that this particular one throughout the New Testament is just about every single time it's usually used in this metaphorical sense of the people of God. We become the temple of God. So there's a word in Greek, naos. And it can, it has the ability to refer to a physical structure, but most of the time that it's used in the New Testament, it's talking figuratively for for the people of God, for where the Spirit of God abides now. Our bodies have become these temples of God. So it's just interesting that the choice of the word itself is very frequently, when it shows up in in the New Testament, refers to this new definition of of the dwelling place of God, which is not limited to a physical building. Because that's that's what it was before. The temple literally confined the presence of God. We're going to actually look a little bit upstairs today. But it would almost like protect the people from God's holy, righteous presence so that it wouldn't unleash itself and kill everybody. It was, it, there was this huge veil and the tabernacle had this several lines of covering so that no one could really see it. It was, it was limiting and protecting God's holy presence. It was almost like it provided the dividing line between us and divinity so that we could still be around it and yet not be destroyed by it. But here, that whole thing, obviously we know the veil is torn with, with Christ. So there's a whole new meaning to, to this little phrase, serving him day and night at his temple. We are just with him intimately. That's what happens in the very last vision of the book, 21 and 22. There's no more sun. We don't, we don't even need it. There isn't a temple. It's just God is with his people. We become that temple because we are with him, dwelling with him. There is no more separation between us and him. Then it talks in verse 16 about this eating thing. No more hunger, nor more thirst. And in some ways, I'm like, boo-hoo. I, I like being hungry, and I like, you know, eating. That doesn't strike me as like yes, I'm not gonna have hunger anymore. Does that mean I'm not gonna feel satisfied when I eat? Am I gonna eat? But later on, Revelation, there is this big marriage supper of the Lamb. Again, these two things sometimes, if it's too literal, they don't they don't hit each other. Um, so where where do we get some of these these images? We'll put them in parallel. No more hunger. No more thirst. No more sun striking people with with scorching heat. What, what do those kind of together mean or, or represent? What can you kind of gather from that? Well, I, I think of it that we're going to have all that we need. You know, now, oftentimes, we're preoccupied with earning a living so that we can have food and shelter and air conditioning and heat. And you know we're going to need to worry about any of that because we're just going to be in the presence of God and focused on, on those things. Totally valid. It's not not a concern of ours. Someone else made a noise. Was that you, Nick?
1: I I mean, it's describing what you would feel if you were lost in the desert. And then you're being guided to the springs of waters of life.
0: Hmm. Yeah. The sense of being lost in the desert. Yeah, it's a very powerful, the desert, the scorching heat does does have a (coughs) desert feel uh, to that. You're, yeah, you're not just exposed to the elements. Definitely, the hunger here is what have to do with just devastation and not having anything. to eat. Not not so much not having pleasure in eating. I, I took that to an extreme, but but yeah, there is no more. There is no more lack in that sense. There is abundance and plenty. Carol, I was
2: going to say I, I'm not sure exactly where the scripture is, but you know it talks about like uh, you won't. Um, the evil are the ones who are hungering and thirsting, you know, because they're hungering and thirsting for the world instead of for Jesus. I think it's in the Psalms. It's like a scripture. I know, but it's just it's a scripture that goes along with uh, not desiring food, you know, like like yeah, your appetite is just overcoming you. Like that happens when you're, uh, you know, Being satisfied in him. But it talks about, it's in the context of like, you know, those, let me me try to find
0: that. Well, while you're doing that, let me, let me give you a place for us to turn to, to kind of see, this is, this is Old Testament imagery. And like I said, God, John, God through John or John, they are reaching back into the prophets, into the Old Testament symbols, and then dragging them into fulfillment in Christ and consequently us. So Isaiah 49, if you would turn there with me, please. Isaiah 49, and it, you might be like, oh, I remember this book. I feel, I feel like I studied this book before, and you'd be right. And you'd probably be like, man, I feel like I forgot everything that we did there, all that time we spent, and that's, that's just usually how this goes. Um, but if you remember, just briefly, in Isaiah, you know, the big dividing marker in Isaiah is chapter 40 and onward, where it becomes much more positive, the message, that there is impending doom, but there is also hope that God has already established and anchored for the future of his people. And we get these glimpses in chapters 40 through 66 of how God is going to act. And we are in one of those moments in chapter 49, starting in verse 8, where God talks about what he will do, which eventually is fulfilled in Christ. And then I'm going to read, and then when we hit when we hit what we looked at in Revelation, it'll be hopefully obviously clear. Verse 8, Thus says Yahweh, or the Lord, in a time of favor, I have answered you, or I will answer you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritage, saying to the prisoners, come on out, and to those who are in darkness, "Up here!" and they shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pastor. Verse 10, they shall not hunger or thirst, nor scorching wind or sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highway shall be raised up, and these shall come from afar, these from the north and from the west, and from these from the land of Syene, etc., etc. And you, you can see right there, it just, it's almost word for word, right? This, this image and idea that in Isaiah represented God's promise to his covenant people that one day after his judgment upon them has passed. He's going to bless them, and this is how he's going to treat them. He's going to go along and go grab them from everywhere that they are, just like the image of the book of Isaiah, bring his sheep on this highway, the way back to Zion, to his place, to his temple, to worship him. And then these images, they won't hunger and thirst there. They're they're going to be protected from the elements. In other words, God is going to protect them and shelter them and cover them. It's a vision of God's protection, his care, his intimate care, with them, it's not, it's not literally in Isaiah. It wasn't literally about hungering and thirsting. It was just about God's provision for his people. So you can see how there's these images from the past that John drags up into this vision to paint a picture of what Christ has done and who we kind of connect with. Uh, but the shocking thing from John's perspective is that the lamb is the one doing this. In Isaiah, it's Yahweh. It's God. He's the one shepherding and doing this for the people of God. And part of what John is saying is this is what the Lamb promises to do. This is how God will do this one day. It's through Jesus Christ. He does that. He offers us that. The Lamb in the midst of the throne, he will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of of the water of life, of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And that, that is, again, another Old Testament reference, the, the wiping away of the tears from everybody's life, of sorrow and all that stuff will be gone entirely one day. So to answer the question of the fifth seal of the souls underneath the altar, how long, God, what about your people? Here is God's answer. I have marked every single one of them. Not any one of them will perish without They won't because I have protected them. They are mine and none of my judgments come upon them. The people of God do not experience the wrath of God because we belong to him. Our robes are washed clean and white and there is a large number of us and our destiny is to worship together before the throne and to be led by the lamb, to be protected, to be covered, to be sheltered. There is no more threat anymore, not just to our physical bodies, but any type of threat mentally, emotionally, not merely physically. We will be comforted and protected. And all of our sorrows will, it's not just that God's like, oh, and he will like take, you know, his great napkin or handkerchief and just kind of push away the tears as we're crying. The idea here is just, it's the removal of sorrow and sadness. It's it's much more than that. It's not just God's going to hold you while you're crying type of thing. Even, even though that, that, I don't want to diminish that. that. That is a thing, comfort in the presence of God. But it's, it goes beyond that. It goes to eliminating the sources of sorrow and washing everything clean. So it's, it's a beautiful picture. Everything that the, the people are suffering and enduring, God puts these two things side by side, an immense task, and these come out of a great trial. And that is what, in a sense, what we live in today. We live under the time of the great trial of the people of God. It doesn't feel that way though does it? We don't we don't feel like we're under a great trial at the moment or um, persecution as Paul would say all who desire to live a godly life shall be persecuted. For some of us we might we might go from birth to death here on in this area of the world and not experience physical persecution that that particular statement of the Bible that you will experience persecution if you desire to live a godly life you might experience some difficulty but others in other parts of the world might, might not have it you know that way in different seasons in the life of the church and throughout history the Christians have not always had it that way. Claude you, you have a thought.
1: Yeah. Can we liken it back to the time when God said to the children of Israel paint your doorframe with blood I will pass over you. Mm. Can we liken what you're just saying to that example that we understand
0: it yeah for for sure that's exactly the the point of for us today anyway of the exodus is that because of the blood yeah. we we are not under that wrath that is that is upon the rest of the world because the lamb has taken his place and he is opening those seals and he is exercising his judgments on the earth and what we see today is none other than his his righteous direction guidance and judgment on the earth because we live
1: that time the, the children of man were on one side of it, and God's children were on the other. But they could see what was happening, but it wasn't happening to them.
0: Yeah, they for a lot of them there was this sharp distinction between oh my animals aren't dying and being killed the boils and yours are my firstborn isn't and but then there are some that it feels like they were all they all kind of lived in the after effects like the, the water turning in the blood. That's one where it seems like all the water went to blood. Somehow, God's people still had what they needed, but it's not told there, but the water of the Israelites did not turn to blood. So there is a sense that we they lived in the same mess, but they were preserved and protected for what God wanted to do. And that is, bottom line, that is the the easiest way to understand the, the overall judgments of of everything. God's doing these things just like he did in Egypt, where he's pronouncing judgment on the gods of man. <clears throat> and as we go through the vision, um <clears throat> claude we're going to see more and more that the judgments each each series of seven kind of unveils a little bit more for us as to what's going on we don't get that we don't get the whole picture just with the seals and we're not going to get the whole picture with the trumpets either but what we do see in the trumpets a little bit more is that while god is exercising judgments on the world god's people are not just sitting there like you know i got a seal on my forehead i'm just going to sit here and wait they're they're actually very active during this time frame and they're protected from the deception of the enemy, <clears throat> and they're very active in announcing the truth. They are witnesses to the word of God, and they drive the world mad. And by the, some of the judgments in the trumpets, we'll see that God will unleash them on. Uh, yeah, actually, let's turn there. Uh, chapter nine. We'll look at the. Um, we'll look at one example of of this <clears throat> exact kind of thing where judgments are unleashed on the unbelieving world, the dwellers of the earth, but. The sealed ones are protected. So the fifth trumpet, (coughs) the fifth angel blew his trumpet. And again, don't get lost too much in some of these details because they are insane. And we'll try to walk through each trumpet at a time, but just listen to the overall point here. A star fallen from heaven to earth and uh, he, this, this person who is like a star, was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit and he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit And from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. And then from the smoke came these locusts on the earth. And they were given the power, like the power of scorpions on the earth. And they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And once again, the person in control of all of this chaos is the one on the throne. Mm -hmm. He tells the scorpions what to do. He unleashes the horsemen. Nothing, nothing is like fighting with God. He's just like, you can do this, and this is how much time you have, and you can do this, but only to this degree. It's just like Job, where God says to Satan, you can do that, but you can't do this to him. Right? It's always Yahweh in control. So you can't, you can't steal them. Verse 5, they were allowed to torment them, the inhabitants of the earth, only for five months. Again, it's a limited amount of time. And not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and not find it. They will long to die, but death <clears throat> excuse me will flee from them. So there, there's an example, Claude, of God's people being protected from a particular judgment that the Lamb unleashes. And the way that it works out <clears throat> in the rest of the letter is that the, they hate that. The people hate that. And they do not repent of their evil deeds. Because at some point, the church is witnessing in the middle of all this. It is telling them the truth and God unleashes these judgments, and it's almost like it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. That's the progression in 1 through 7, is that as God unleashes his judgments, and as the people of God continue to give witness to the truth, it's like people get hardened and hardened and hardened, just like the Exodus, where as things get crazier and crazier, the Pharaoh gets harder and harder. And like, no, no. And that allows for God to reveal himself more fully. That's... That's what this looks like it's doing, just like the Exodus event, where the judgments of God, people do repent, right? Just like there were some Egyptians that joined the Israelites on the way out. That that does happen. God adds to his multitude as, as he does that. But one of the functions of the judgments is to harden the people of God so that God can then do something even more amazing, even more clear, and he protects the people, enabling them to complete their mission. This is, we'll finish with this. this. There's another vision in Uh, Chapter 11, there's another break. Excuse me. It's this one here, right? Between the 6th and the 7th trumpet, there is another break that has two different visions. And one of the themes in the two witnesses is, uh, let's go there really quick in in chapter 11, that I think highlights this same idea, that during this chaos, God protects his people and enables them to do his mission, regardless of what's happening. He protects them and until it's done. Just like the people at the altar saying, how much longer? God's like, until the last witness of mine has been done doing his job and getting killed. Then we're done. So very similarly, chapter 11, verse 4, <clears throat> describes these, these two, they're like olive trees, they're lampstands. It just says, they are the two olive trees and lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone harms them, fire comes out of their mouth and consumes their foes. And if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood, very much like Egypt, Claude, to strike the earth with every kind of plague, as often as they desire. And then when they have finished their testimony, their witness, then the beast that rises from the bottomless pit, he will make war and he will conquer them and their dead bodies will be laying in the street. So it's like God has appointed this, period of time for his witnesses to do their work and nothing will thwart that it sounds very much like the mission to the church well the gates of hell cannot prevail over the church and their witness and the gospel will go forth and it is powerful to change and transform and illuminate And nothing can stop that from happening even if along the way the people of god are physically persecuted tormented killed ostracized you know push aside in society that's still not going to impede the mission of God from occurring, and they will not be under the wrath of God they will be under his divine care and protection, and ultimately they will they will end up in that place where they have these streams of living waters where no sun will scorch them, they're not going to experience hunger or thirst, even if in this life they do right that's the big contrast for the people reading this is just thinking of this multitude of people who are not going to experience this hardship but they are the ones like john is on an island imprisoned for the faith probably suffering hunger probably enduring thirst he doesn't have a fridge where he can go get water whenever he wants it he has to work for the rest of his well until his time was done and he returned to asia minor but that that's the the crazy contrast that he's describing, right? He's probably under the sun; his skin is probably getting burnt as he writes this. Uh, <laughs> that's me just imagining things. Uh, but you can you can see how that. Anyways, how that that theme really ties together in the book of people are going to accomplish the mission until God's decided that he's done. He will protect them. That that theme really repeats itself uh, through these. Anyways, I think that concludes the Seven Seals. The seventh seal is going to it's just kind of be like it's done right? It's the first verse of chapter eight that the lamb opens the seventh seal and then it's like it's just silence in heaven and I love the little half hour thing. I have no idea what I don't know if that is, but um, the people that I have enjoyed reading, they just speculate this is just kind of like it's complete it's done all this and then the last one is broken bah! no more it's all done and there's silence and then the vision will carry on but i think that does represent the conclusion in the seventh seal the end it will be all done oh, it's like that whew, that gasp that last it's all finished before john goes on to see you know another, another vision of seven of the seven trumpets but that's how I propose we read the seven seals describing human history from the ascension of Christ until his return till it's completed the protection of God's people their sealing their oversight and God bringing them all the way through and yes God exercising judgments on the earth and part of that people will will suffer both the unbelievers as well as us as we are on our mission to witness and to proclaim the truth and as we're following the Lamb. So that that's how I think this, this works out. And we'll approach the trumpets the same way. The first four trumpets, they pretty much go together. You'll see that they're, they're very much tied together. And then the fifth and the sixth are almost like standalones. And then there's two visions, and then there's the finale in the seventh. It follows the same pattern as the seals. I think that's another sign th- that these are meant to be taken in parallel with each other
2: seventh
0: is that it's like the end it's the conclusion both the trumpet and the seal they they're, they're both talking about the same thing the end and as as we read and go forward we're going to see that they, they seem to progress to get towards the end in a very similar way so we'll fill in the gaps as we go but we'll pick up from chapter eight and if you're enjoying reading a little bit ahead you probably already read eight i know pam you definitely did um we still haven't gotten to that uh, section, but we'll <laughs> eight through eleven is is chapter eleven is the seven trumpets. So though, if you read them all together, it's helpful to have the whole thing in mind, and we'll 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 tackle like that: four, five, six, two visions, seven. That's how we'll. If you want to think of it that way when you're reading, break it up that way. You'll see that they, they uh, they fit somewhat like and that.
3: Just to interject, um, yesterday I did. On YouTube, you can access um, the, the King James Bible read by Alexander Scorby. Um, he has a powerful voice. And his and accent's married. cool. In any event, I had it on. I listened, and if you listen to somebody reading the books of Bible, I went from um, for, er, 1 or First John through Revelation twice in a matter of like an hour and a half Mm. listening to it. But the first time I listened to it through, I just like how you guys keep saying, just read it through, just read it through. Don't get caught up listening to, it It really, really, really speaks so much clearer. And I was like, I was caught up in um, John's style of writing, John one, two, and three. He's talking kind of about the same thing, but just at different levels. So I went back and was like, oh, I want to hear it again. So I listened through it the second time, and I realized only like an hour and a half had transpired. I had it just playing as I was going about my my things in the house. But again, it's the King James Version Bible, Alexander Scorby, and you can get it on YouTube.
0: I think that's the only one he does the reading for, yes. right? He's a very yeah. very famous reader. Yeah. It's a very good Alex. one. Alexander Scorby, I think, is
3: it um, S-C-O-R? B-I? Is that right? Is that how I it don't is? remember
0: the spelling, but I, but I know exactly who you're talking about. He's a, he's unique. It will definitely come up all on its own yeah. on, on the search.
2: You know, Venus, that scripture I was thinking about, it says, a good man eats the satisfying of his soul, but the belly of the wicked shall want." So, a lot of times when you're wanting food, it's you're upset, you're tired, you're whatever, and it's like, you're in, I, I this is how I saw that, like, it's you're in a state where when when we're going to be sa- our souls going to be satisfied? We're not going to be desiring food, which is is an
0: addiction. Yeah, yeah. the Lord is my shepherd; I shall not one. be in one. Yeah. yeah, in that state, right? Very cool. All right, guys, we kind of finished on time, but uh, we'll be back.